Hello, everybody. I'm Dwayne Mancini, and welcome to the first episode of season four of the Project MedTech podcast. We are very much looking forward to bringing another content-rich season of the podcast to you. If you need anything from us or would like to suggest a future guest, you can email us at info at projectmedtech.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. For more information on Project MedTech, our events we host, our consulting and advisory services, and to sign up for our monthly newsletter, visit our website, www.projectmedtech.com, and follow us on LinkedIn. If you're enjoying this content, don't forget to check out our other podcasts by searching MedTech Money on your favorite podcast platform or by heading to our website. MedTech Money is an interview-style podcast focused on demystifying, raising, and investing capital for MedTech companies. In this episode, our guest, Shannon Clark, and I discuss human factors testing, IEC 62366-1 standard, why she founded UserWise, why one should consider human factors testing even if the FDA doesn't require it, what are the cost drivers for the human factors testing, and so much more. So without further ado, my discussion with Shannon Clark. Shannon, welcome to the podcast. Hello, thanks for having me. Yeah, so uh, Shannon, a, a background on um, yourself uh, and uh, what you're currently up to at UserWise. Absolutely. Well, I founded UserWise in 2014, and UserWise focuses on helping to co create safe and usable medical products. We partner with sponsors and manufacturers for combination products and medical devices and help them navigate the uh, sort of new, now sort of well-known FDA regulations and guidance surrounding human factors, as well as the international standards. So for me, I sit on the International Standards Committee for IEC 62366, and I founded UserWise with the mission of kind of testing out and identifying what are all of the best practices for human factors engineering. And then we're working to apply those best practices to the development of combination products and medical devices. Awesome. Um, before we die, dive too much into um, uh, user wise and human factors and, and real quick, the standard was 62. IEC 62366-1. Perfect. Um, okay. And um, so before we dive too much into human factors testing and, and even more specifically user-wise, um, your background, I mean, how do you get into human factors testing? Are you an engineer? Were you in medical device? Why medical device? I, I want to know about why you founded user-wise. Absolutely. Well, I started out at UCLA studying mechanical engineering. And I was always interested in user-centered design of products. Uh, I think many of us in the human factors space have seen that 1990s um, show or news news uh, news bit about uh, IDO redesigning the shopping cart. And so they went in, they performed user research, they saw all of the uh, pitfalls of current modern day shopping carts, which seems like a pretty benign, straightforward design, but they were able to uncover all of these ways that it could be improved by just observing the way that 
users work their way through the grocery store. Um, so as a young kid, I saw that and I was pretty inspired to kind of think about how do users interact with products. So UCLA didn't have a product design program, but I graduated with a degree in mechanical engineering, went to Abbott Laboratories, had a really unique opportunity to apprentice the world's leading expert in medical device human factors, Ed Izrowski, very talented guy and convener, convener of the IEC 6366 uh, committee uh, for developing that standard. So after I was able to apprentice him, I sort of learned the ways of human factors and medical device. And I was able to get a job at Intuitive Surgical and did a bunch of work for the DaVinci XI surgical system uh, and surgical robots, as well as the DaVinci SP. And then from there, I was able to found my company, UserWise, uh, starting out by helping early fledgling medical device companies out of Stanford Biodesign, Fogarty Institute for Innovation. Um, and then from there, we've uh, built a pretty large practice. So how big is UserWise? How many employees? We're about 30 uh, consultants ah, with that's amazing. over 20 dedicated human factors engineers uh, focused oh. on usability testing and use-related risk management, and then a dedicated team of recruiters to access difficult mm -hmm. to find populations. We also have an in-house IRB, so individuals dedicated to reviewing ethical compliance of usability study protocols. Uh, and then finally, operations staff. Okay, awesome. So there's a lot of questions I have about human factors. I think this is like a, it, it's it's relatively, the concept of it in product design is, is not like, horribly new right um from based on what you described however um i think in the medical device space um it it is it is a little new i, I mean the fda just regulated it in 2016 is that right or, or when did the fda say like start actually talking about human factors because it wasn't always the case absolutely i mean interestingly they started talking about human factors in the preamble of the code of federal regulations for quality systems in 2000 uh, i'm sorry 1996 1997 mm -hmm. and so they said very clearly that their interpretation of 21 cfr 820.30 part g where it's talking about design validation of medical products they they are kind of envisioning usability testing to be employed. So very early on, there were stakeholders in the FDA and industry that believed that validation, uh, a type of validation would be usability testing. But they, at the time, they didn't have any human factors practitioners to enforce this. In, two, in the year 2000, they actually came out with a final guidance on human factors and no one really read it, to be honest. But it wasn't until about 2008, 2009 that they started employing human factors specialists at the FDA to go knock on the doors of infusion pump companies and surgical robotics companies to come and audit them and assess whether their validation was adequate and whether they're integrating human factors adequately with post-market surveillance. Um, so that's when they really started, when word on the street started to kind of per percolate through uh, through industry and, and people started to listen. And the FDA came out with their draft guidance for the new human factors guidance in 2011. So a lot of companies started springing to action then, but it wasn't until 2016, as you said, that the FDA finalized their guidance uh, and started really heavily enforcing it across all of industry, uh, not just those really high risk medical devices. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. Okay. And, and so, um, the history is helpful. Um, I think simply put, what is human factors testing, um, in relation directly to medical devices? Basically what I want to cover here is what is it? Um, how do we, how do you incorporate that into your, your, your company or taking a product to market and when, right? But, but let's start with what is it at a simple level? Yeah. So usability testing specifically is the concept of observing users interact with products. So for example, at UserWise, we have a simulated operating room environment as well as a simulated reprocessing center. And so uh, we'll recruit and users, intended users of products, and then observe them interacting with that product end to end without, many times without training them and definitely without biasing okay. them toward a certain behavior. Um, and so it's not a survey, it's not a questionnaire, it's actually observing use and then identifying if we were to launch this product in real life and sell it, how will it actually be used? Um, likewise, we can't necessarily ask the users to read the instructions before beginning. And uh, especially with all combination product testing, the FDA heavily frowns upon training because there's no way to ensure provision of training for many of these products. Um, so I think historically, uh, maybe in the 90s, there were a lot of surveys done or even focus groups to solicit information from and users, but the premise of this new guidance and the way that we're practicing it is that uh, actions speak louder than words. Right. Okay. Um, so this makes sense. When does like like for me, what I would struggle with because I'm not a product person, um, is this would make sense to happen before I'm at a design freeze. Right. Um, or before I'm, I'm rolling this out. But it, to me, it sounds like there's probably the human factors maybe comes in and in, in multiple spots within like the life cycle of a, of a product. I mean, is that right? Or, or when when are you encouraging folks to be thinking about this? We always say as early as possible. It's kind of like identifying your regulatory pathway. You want to do that as soon as you found the company, find out what that product code is. Similarly, you want to do an early stage vetting of whatever prototype you've come up with and integrate human factors, best practices, even with the user needs finding. Um, so our favorite client comes to us as soon as they have an idea, they come in for a free consultation, and at least we're able to kind of set them up with the right process early on. Uh, but ultimately we do have clients that will come to us and they have finished the design. It's after design freeze. They have very little leeway for making any changes. And then they're asking us to do human factors validation. And the risk with that, and some companies do just kind of jump into it and say, well, this is the bare minimum what the FDA requires. So we're just going to do the final study. Um, but what that will lead to many times is a failed human factors validation, which delays timelines, it's excessively costly, validation is more costly than formative, which is the early stage usability testing. So ideally, you come up with a concept, you don't even hard code it if it's software, maybe you just make wireframes or even employ PowerPoint to evaluate certain features and button names, and uh, then have users interact with that in a low fidelity environment, 
and then iterate that design. And the more upfront work you can do, the more time and cost savings you'll have. Okay, so so th this is this brings up a good point. We we just had this conversation uh, at our Houston Startup Symposium in in October, where we talked about quality, right? And it was when you're when you have a startup, when you have a med tech company, not just startup, um, you know, doing things because the guidance tells you to isn't the right mentality, right? It's actually the mentality of, I wanna make sure I'm good, I'm putting a good quality product on the market. Um, so what I guess I would fear as, a, as an advisor to a lot of startup companies is if the FDA comes back and says, yeah, we don't actually require any human factors testing um, on this product, is that they go, great, we don't need it, good, right? But, but it sounds like what you're saying is that human factors is essential to putting a good quality product on the market. So if if I'm a company that doesn't require some type of human factor validation for submission or clearance or approval at the FDA level, do I still do human factors testing? Where does this fit in in my product scope? Knowing, well, let me stop there um, because knowing that like cost is an issue, right? And that's what we're up against is like, well, if I don't have to spend money to do this, then then great. You know, I'll come back and do it later. But so I, I'm curious in your thoughts there. Yeah, um, it's so challenging. If the FDA is not requiring a usability study or submission, um, it's kind of difficult to um, persuade some management stakeholders to pursue it. Um, and that's definitely a problem that we were definitely facing before the year 2016. Uh, but I think it's become commonly accepted that you're not going to pass your validation if you don't do early stage formative. And validation is required for all medical devices. So there okay. are situations where you could pursue validation with a smaller sample size of participants or um, come up with some other method for validating your product, but the in, the true intent of, again, 21 CFR 820.30 Part G, where it's saying to do design validation, is that you need to pursue a usability study uh, most of the time for most medical devices. And so it's sort of a different question whether the FDA is requiring that you submit that data. And I think there's very commonly confusion in industry that because the FDA issued this draft guidance about high priority devices, for example, in this guidance, they're saying for a surgical robot, you absolutely have to submit a human factors engineering submission summary report. But the existence of that high priority guidance doesn't necessarily say that you get to skip it if you're a, I'm not going to say tongue depressor, but a lower risk yeah. uh, medical yeah. product that's not on the list. Okay. All right. All right. Um, okay. So you have to have some proof of that validation though, whether it's coming from a, a, a strict, you know, human factors test or, or, but, but something like that. Okay. Um, okay. And so, um, the, when we, we talked about it as early as, um, you know, as soon as they can think about it, um, they need it, you know, theoretically before, uh, there's FDA clearance or approval. Um, what about post-market wise? Um, yeah. Is, is does human factors creep in there? Well, if, for example, a company decides to do the bare minimum or they're just tagging on a usability study at the end and not really following a user-centered design process, inevitably you'll 
iron out all the severe critical safety issues. Um, this this product is not going to cause serious harm or injury to users. However, it's going to inevitably have a slew of usability issues and ease of use issues that will elevate the cost of on-market training, as well as complaints management. You'll probably end up with some sort of field action um, if uh, there is a, a new use issue that could cause serious in, uh, injury or a pattern of problems in the field. Um, so that is truly the reason to bake quality by design and human factors, best practices into the design of the medical device early and often. But post-market surveillance, I think, is the key to truth with regards to medical device safety. It's sort of the honest, largest usability study of them all. <laughs> How will the entire population use this medical device? And it's an area that's that I care about a lot. Um, what I see often is companies are not adequately integrating their their work up front uh, in their use-related risk analyses and identify uh, identification of use issues. They're not sort of integrating that with triaging issues in the field. And then there's sort of lost information and they're not quite sure what's happening in the field. Um, so not only is it important to follow user-centered design process, but you also want to integrate the findings of that process and uncovering all those use issues into the way you're structuring your post-market surveillance. Okay. Um, so post-market surveillance is an easy tie into uh, Europe and the EUMDR. How much is human factors play? I mean, I, I feel like we've been talking pretty US-centric here. It, does does human factors start to creep in globally as well? What is Do you have experience in that space? What's that like? Yeah. I mean, US is the main driver uh, for okay. human factors practice in that they are the only jurisdiction that originally said you need a minimum sample size of 15 users. Technically, you could be compliant with the international standard with just one user. You just need to justify it in some way. Um, so it, furthermore, the FDA has required that you test U.S. residents, and they're the only jurisdiction that requires in-country testing, which causes everyone to do their usability testing, their final stage usability testing in the United States. Okay. Um, However, China did just come out with a human factors guidance. I believe they're calling for 25 users. Don't quote me on that one. Just refer to our blog. Where we <laughs> that. But um, it, it's, uh, it's, it's great, though, that uh, over the past decade, a lot of work has been done in the 6366 International Standards Committee to align the international standard with the FDA expectations. There's very few differences between the standard and the FDA guidance. So you can kind of get the other for free by doing one pathway. Right. Uh, and that standard we hope will be recognized in Europe soon. Um, they had harmonized the 62366-2007 edition um, and then uh, later, um, later kind of pursued this MDR format. And now they're, uh, now they're hopefully going to recognize the, the new version, which has been harmonized with the FDA. Okay. Um, with human factors, um, like biocompatibility, um, was a space I got, I kind of like cut my teeth on in, uh, um, the med tech space and, 
for an area that you think was pretty black and white, there was a lot of gray areas with what different organization or different different geographical regions recognized which parts of the standards and this and that. Is is human factors kind of the same thing? Is there a lot of gray area with with your rationalization for why you did certain things, or or is it a little more black and white? When you compare different geographies. What, yeah, when we compare different geographies or, I mean, you could even compare the same geography, right? Like it, it felt as if it was a, depending on what reviewer we had at the FDA was whether they accepted our biocompatibility plan or not, right? That's Absolutely. how it felt sometimes. Yeah. Is that the same thing with human factors? With the FDA, that is my sense as well, especially because okay. they had built a really great core human factors team a couple years ago, but then over the past three or so years due to the pandemic, they lost a lot of their longer tenured human factors practitioners. Mm. And so with having a pretty new human factors team, I feel that there have been some big shifts in the way they're requiring us to practice human factors. Um, for example, a uh, couple years ago, we were able to justify a subset of needle naive and needle experienced users in combination product testing or drug delivery devices. Uh, but now they're requiring entire groups of 15 needle naive versus 15 needle experienced users, which mm -hmm. uh, greatly uh, increases sample size. Another example of a change in, in practice is uh, they require uh, robotic surgery naive surgeons for robotic surgical testing. Previously, we were able to argue that our company is not training surgeons in the art of robotic surgery. So our, the scope of our study is just looking at a robotic surgeon learning a new robotic surgical system, which is a lot easier to test. Um, mm -hmm. So these are some examples of heightened FDA requirements, I think, due to turnover within the FDA and uh, the introduction of new perspectives. Um, so yeah, I always recommend submitting a protocol whenever possible. But a lot of these early stage startups or even just medical device developers in general, in general, they're on pretty tight timelines. They don't have time to submit a protocol to the FDA and then sit around for 60 days uh, while that's reviewed. Right, right. Um... Okay, so let me see where I want to go with this first. Um, well, yeah, let, 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 let's talk about that. So um, if, 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 if we have a, if, if, we're, if we're saying, okay, we are going to do human factors, we think it's required, is this something where we take the protocol and, and submit it as part of the pre-submission package and say, hey, does, does FDA agree with how we plan to tackle human factors? Is, is that kind of the standard protocol here? Yeah, specifically what they want to review is the human factors validation protocol. Mm -hmm. And similar uh, in so what I was saying earlier, in earlier years of practicing human factors, you could just submit the protocol, they'd review it and say whether they agree with your critical task selection or your um, decision to exclude a certain user population. Um, they could just review it and provide um, feedback. Uh, these days, they're requiring an entire human factors engineering submission report. So that includes a review of all known issues with similar products and a summary of all of your past formative usability testing. Um, so there's an increased kind of burden associated with uh, 
preparing all that documentation to submit for protocol review. I'm hopeful that over upcoming years, they'll become more flexible again and just kind of review the protocol and empower us to just move forward with testing rather than requiring all this extra documentation. Okay, so in in clinical trials, right, because I have experience in the clinical space as well, um, there are the FDA endpoints um, that you are trying to capture in order to make sure they have sufficient data. Um, but then there's the bonus endpoints, as I like to call them, where we're going to make commercialization claims. We need to capture data to secure reimbursement, um, you know, just to name a few, right? There's other endpoints that you want to try to capture. With human factors, is it the same thing? Is it there? There's there's the main, hey, we got to make sure we're, we hit the endpoints the FDA wants us to hit or capture that data. But is there other data that we can capture that can support the the health of the company or product launch later on? Absolutely. And to be honest, I don't see companies taking advantage of that as often as they should, where they could come up with some pretty great claims related to usability or ease of use. And I think part of that might be my skewed sample size in that I work with research and development directors, VPs, managers, human factors, engineers, just individuals who are very focused on validating or finalizing the design of the product. And they're not necessarily connected as closely with the marketing team. So the marketing team might be doing some other effort to uh, validate certain marketing claims. Maybe they are leveraging clinical work instead of human factors work, but we have done studies entirely focused on supporting marketing tra- uh, claims such as reduced burden of training or an assessment of um, ease of use when you compare two products. And those are things that we can certainly capture in this final stage usability testing. Awesome. Uh, that is super helpful because this is something that you know we, we talk about with a lot of the companies we work with uh, on a daily basis, which is getting getting um, approved or getting through the regulatory agency you're applying to like that's that's awesome you have to do it but but it doesn't it just it doesn't mean much right commercial having being successful commercially is is really where you start to see companies fall off in tranches right and so I'm always encouraging them if you know if we're doing things for the FDA, is there other endpoints we can collect for different studies that are going to bolster, you know, investment strategy uh, or commercial strategy? And so that's really important to kind of highlight that. So I love the ease of use, the timing, and and really the whole idea is they don't have to have all the endpoints. It's just what voices do these companies need in the room when they're having this discussion? Because as you just mentioned. They might. It might be easy to think. Well, it's just our product person, or it's just our regulatory person it needs to be talking to Shannon. When maybe marketing should be there because this might come up, and the marketing person can go, wait, hold on a minute. We can grab some information for this. Then can we build this in? And you might, because this is how it was with clinical trials, where it was like, if we knew ahead of time that you wanted to collect specific information, we could build that in, and it was it barely cost you anything else, right? Like it was just, oh, okay, we can collect that, no problem. It's it's cost this much, but if we have to go back and do it. It's either hard or impossible, um, and and you have to go do another study now. So this is this is really good to know, uh, just for others that are coming into this conversation, realizing who they need to have around the table to have a conversation with their human factors um, expert. And I think investors are trying to 
they need you to bring that product further and further along. If you compare to like a decade ago, uh, there could be an acquisition even before you get a 510k or something like that. But at this point, mm -hmm. you really need to nail down your reimbursement strategy. And uh, I'm not an expert in reimbursement. But if I were starting a company in the medical device space, I would make sure to talk to a world leading uh, clinical expert who's run clinical testing for a similar medical device, a world's leading expert in reimbursement, a human factors expert, uh, um, and you know marketing and and uh, kind of to, uh, marketing expert, uh, and just mm -hmm. make sure that all those strategies are are nailed down even before I start making a prototype or when I have like a very rough idea for a prototype. Because if you if it's going to be impossible to achieve reimbursement or you're trying to create a new code for your product, um, I, I think that's just something that you really need to think about before you even yeah. start. Um, yep. Yeah, we, we do this exercise with a lot of our companies because we, we do a lot with commercialization, especially with the U.S. healthcare system, which is is fairly complex. And, you know, we'll we'll ask them who's going to pay for your product. Not, not even is there reimbursement codes, but just who's paying for this. And then once you identify that, then we can figure out how they're going to pay for it and why they're going to pay for it. Um, and then we start to get into some bigger conversations there. But but you're, you're totally right. Um, I, I think um, 10, 15 years ago, boy, you get a regulatory approval and that was like this massive valuation bump. And now I don't know if that's necessarily the case. I mean, sometimes it is, um, but commercialization is really, really, really hard. It takes a long time. Um, so any kind of information you could pull from studies like this, you know, then that's really important. Um, and the data the required for reimbursement is just so elevated in comparison to the threshold to get through the FDA. But I do want to comment that right now reimbursement is not focused on human factors and actual use. Um, I heard that there's been some data shared with regards to closed loop insulin systems. Uh, but from my practice, I have never been tasked to do an independent study for the purposes of reimbursement just because I don't think they're focused on those types of endpoints. But I could certainly imagine human factors catching catching on, catching fire in the reimbursement space and then opening up a new business opportunity for user-wise, <laughs> but also just yeah. uh, requiring sort of this real-life use um, concept to be embedded within all the testing. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I, I think for me, when you said ease of use, that's marketing, commercialization, sales. It builds our, our sales strategy into a hospital of, hey, if we can, you know, if this if this is going to save your doctors 15 minutes, that's 15 more minutes where they could be profitable somewhere else, right? That kind of thing. Um, uh, the one question I was going to ask earlier, uh, and I was trying to figure out the order, and I'm, I'm glad we did it the way we did so far. I'm not going to ask you how much does human factors studies cost because um, – in the when I was working with NAMSA and LabCorp, I used to hate that question of, well, how much does a clinical trial cost? Uh, it could cost ten thousand dollars. It can cost three million dollars. Right? It really depends <laughs> on a number of factors. So, what I want to ask you is, what are the major cost drivers when someone's building a human factors test? Is it number of people? Is it time? Is it the the level of which you need do you need to bring in a neurosurgeon or a a, a you know nurse I mean what does that look like um, can you kind of talk about those cost drivers 
Yeah, I mean, those are the cost drivers. The number of participants. Oh, okay. so a lot of times we uh, are tasked with negotiating with the FDA to reduce the sample size. As I mentioned earlier, if you're developing an auto injector, you need needle naive users and needle experienced users. So uh, we would negotiate with the FDA and say, okay, well, we're going to have seven naive and eight uh, experienced, and that will comprise of one user group with that one medical indication. So a lot of this is kind of negotiating with the FDA with your protocol review to try to drive down your sample size wherever possible and reasonable to do so. Um, also, the length of the session will um, inform um, the cost associated. So a robotic surgery device would take four to eight hours to do the just the test, and that's that doesn't even include the training for the users, uh, which you need to follow that with a training decay. Um, surgeons are very expensive uh, to pay to participate in these studies. A lot of times you'll also have teams associated with complex medical devices where you need at least two users uh, from a representative surgical team. Um, so all of those factors will uh, kind of determine the overall cost. Um, also, there are devices where it can be justified to do a reduced burden of testing or even like just very minimal testing. So for example, if you have a guide wire that's exactly the same as the last guide wire that was developed, you could maybe prepare a technical rationale for no usability testing. Okay. All right. Um, okay. Is there anything else on uh, human factors testing that you think we missed that is like, hey, we, we didn't talk about this, but I'd, I'd like to touch on it? Um, I think another thing we want to get your product concept in front of users, uh, give them some hands-on experience and uh, unveil potential use issues that might arise when interacting with those prototypes. But another big part of this is just cataloging um, human error. So from the get-go, when you're first developing product and running these early stage studies, just keeping a catalog of all the use errors that are associated with this product and identifying what severity harm the use errors could ultimately lead to. And this would offer a prioritization of design efforts because I think a lot of times design teams might be barking up a tree where it's an ease of use tree. Like it seems like something we should definitely iron out, but then in the background, we have this critical problem that could lead to death, and then they're not working on that. So I really like to see design teams prioritizing their efforts based on severity level. Okay, um, awesome. So I'm gonna pivot here from the conversation. We've talked about human factors testing, um, but but now I, I wanna just kind of chat a little bit about um, user-wise, we recently took on an investment, is that right? Yeah, um, so NaviMed has created this umbrella organization called ClariMed. NaviMed is a private equity firm. And UserWise is their first acquisition as part of that umbrella organization. Uh, I'm really excited about this opportunity because I'll no longer be a lone sailor entrepreneur. I was the sole owner of my company for seven years uh, and CEO. This is going to enable me to... Uh, re-enter the field of human factors in a, in a way because with such a large organization, I was spending a lot of time with finance and human resources. And now I get to go back to being a subject matter expert with some more hands-on uh, human factors work. 
so I'm really excited about this move. We have a new CEO named Kelly Kendall, who's so talented with years of experience running consultancies. Um, so I, I think this is just gonna be a tremendous move for me uh, professionally as well, because I don't have experience growing an organization of 30 people to an organization of 100 people. And so I have to be honest about my own uh, personal professional limitations. And I think by bringing in a partner who has experience growing companies, it's gonna really uh, enable us to skyrocket and deliver even better uh, quality of service uh, to all of our customers. Yeah, it's super exciting. So, you know, for those who are um, in the uh, service space um, where where they might be looking at, hey, I, I guess, you know, sometimes there's this negative like uh, connotation of like, oh, well, private equity firms come in, they they buy a bunch and put them under one umbrella. Right. And that's their thing. But then the you know, like if you if you talk to the private equity firms, their their play is actually, well, actually, we just want to take Shannon, your vision of user wise. And instead of taking 30 years to get to maybe where you think you can take it, let's just add gasoline to the fire and let it go now. Right. I mean, and it sounds like based on what you just said right there, it sounds like that's been your um your experience with it as well or how you thought of that is that accurate absolutely and i had numerous yeah. offers to buy the whole company last year and then navimed sort of came out of nowhere to be honest i wasn't really taking them seriously when they were meeting with me <laughs> <laughs> Somehow, like, pro, uh, the conversations progressed but they said oh um we can invest in your company i said we're cash positive. I don't need investment. What are you talking about? Mm -hmm. uh, but then they kind yeah. of explained to me how it works. And uh, it's just, I, I interviewed them extensively and our mission statement was just so well aligned. Their mission is to create an industry leader focused on quality by design. And um, I talked to them at length about, yeah, like there's definitely a way to crank up revenue in this human factor space. If you can persuade your client to test 190 participants and run like $2 million human factor studies when they don't need to, that's a great way to make a lot of profit, but it's not the right thing to do. It's not the right thing to do for patients. It's not the right yeah. thing to do for clients. And ultimately, um, our goals are aligned that we're going to be ethical and always drive the client towards the least burdensome approach. Um, and so I think once it was really clear that we we're all on the same page with that, I felt really comfortable moving forward with taking them on as a, a partner here. Yeah. I, I love the way you're talking about it. it it's, it's, um, you know, with, with some traditional med tech companies um, where they're not cash flow positive, like you said, where it's like, hey, we don't, we don't actually need investment. Um, for some reason, that like instantly makes some startups think, well, I just need the cash. I just need the cash, right? But the way you talked about how you took on investment dollars, which I understand everyone doesn't have that luxury, but but the one takeaway from that is, you know, if, if you are a med tech company and you feel like you actually have something and you're having these conversations with other investors, you need to be doing your due diligence and interviewing them as much as they're doing due diligence on you. Um, because it could really alter how you take on the company. Now we're getting into like a med tech money 
podcast episode, which is our sister <laughs> podcast, but, but but that's okay. I wanted to cover this because I thought that was interesting when we talked the last time um, about uh, uh, taking on the private equity group as 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 really like a catalyst and and uh, partner. So um, awesome. Well. Shannon, I, I don't have anything else for you. I um, will put your LinkedIn um, link into the show notes. I'll put UserWise's website into the show notes. I will also call out the specific standard you mentioned earlier as well so people can find that. Um, and yeah, other than that, Shannon, thank you so much for doing this. We, we've done 118 probably recorded like 124, 25 episodes of Project Medtex. We haven't covered human factors testing yet. So this is this is a first. So thanks for doing this. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, now hang on for one more minute. I'll stop the recording here. We'll chat offline. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at info at projectmedtech.com. Thanks for listening and have a great day.